Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good evening. Thank you for coming. These days when people come to Somerset House, they come usually to ice skate or to see the fashion and thanks to Somerset House they now often come because they're members of the EI club such as this evening. It's uh, a great pleasure to be hosting this event. We do a lot of events about politics and current affairs and international events and when we looked at the calendar for what was coming up over the next few months we thought well really the event that defines a lot of people's interest in a pre-Oscars special following last month's pre-Davos special uh, what would happen to you if they turned your book into a film and if they ever make a movie about a radio presenter they'll make it about John Wilson when he was interviewing Chris Martin of Coldplay and he, he, uh, he had a bit of a meltdown and John was like you're not talking to me silence you're not talking to me so he is going to introduce the wonderful panel this is my job to thank you to remind you that everything is recorded on podcast that all the ei club events are on podcast free on itunes and to say enjoy the evening and john julia thank you very much for that ludicrously overblown introduction but um this as julia said this is uh, on the record Debate. It's being recorded. It will be available as a podcast. Please turn phones off. Uh, as ever, Editorial Intelligence have brought together a stellar panel for this event. You'll have a chance, well, not a chance, we'll have the whole evening really to ask questions. So really do keep the debate flowing. This is a conversation not only between the four people here alongside me, but really everybody in the room. Uh, it is a really timely debate. And... Um, let me introduce, first of all, the panellists here. And after I've said who they are and what they represent, they'll each give you five minutes, their own personal experience of this relationship between film and books. On my far right, that's Laura Hassan, who's the editorial director of Vintage Classics. We're obviously very lucky to have Laura here today, as it is the 200th birthday of one of her big authors. Um, <laughs> She could be at a birthday party or two, I'm sure. But So, thanks to Laura. Benjamin Mee, next to me here, is the author of We Bought a Zoo. Extraordinary story of how Benjamin and his family bought the Dartmoor Wildlife Park, complete with lions and tigers and monkeys and bears. Even more extraordinarily, Ben is now played by Matt Damon in Cameron Crowe's adaptation of the, uh, of the book. We'll hear all about that in a moment. <laughs> Why should that be extraordinary? I don't know. That was a, uh, Revel Guest here to my left is a pioneering former Panorama producer, uh, a filmmaker. She is the chair of the Hay Literary Festival, but she is also the British producer of War Horse, an extraordinary story of how you managed to persuade Michael Morpogo to hook up with Steven Spielberg uh, and everybody else to be told in a moment. And then Amelia Granger, who is the head of development at Working Title Films, so is therefore responsible for my best favorite film of the year, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and many others in the past. I think, Amelia, you're responsible for bringing uh, Bridget Jones from 
page to screen, atonement, many others. So um, just to get us going, a few thoughts from me. It is the Oscars in just over, what is it, a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Everybody's got their own idea of which films should win the Oscars this year, but it's clear already I think there is one group of winners, and that is books. I think in the best film category of the nine or ten films in contention, six are literary adaptations. So Michael Moore Pergo's War Horse is now Steven Spielberg's War Horse, and Brian Selznick's Hugo Cabret is Scorsese's Hugo. Um, and then, of course, there's the Bastards this weekend, so we'll be hoping that uh, Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy wins. Um, the Artist, in fact, the only film, I think, in contention for the best film on the BAFTAs list, the only film which hasn't been adapted from a book. But if we think back, of course, to The Godfather or to David Lean's Great Expectations or The Bolting Brothers and Attenborough with Bright Rock, the list goes on and on and on. So let me start by asking each of our guests to say why they're here. And Laura, kick us off, would you? And uh, your, um, your experience as editorial director of Vintage Classics, first of all. Um, so, ooh, that's really loud. Uh, so, I'm going to state the very obvious thing at the very beginning, which is publishers love book adaptations into films. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, one sort of startling fact that came out last week is that there were more books published last week than there were in the whole of 1950. So you're talking about so many books coming out. One of the main things that we used to be able to sell our books in bookshops, but those bookshops are getting smaller. So to get our books to you, to audiences, is getting harder. And as more and more people read them on devices, you're not seeing book jackets as much as you used to either. And so having a kind of film tie-in is a huge, huge, huge opportunity for us. It's kind of like winning the jackpot. And a sort of sh- a little snapshot of that, I just thought I'd read you the New York Times bestseller list this week. At the top three are... The Help is at number one, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is at number two, and Girl with Dragon Tattoo is at number three. In the UK, the bestseller list in the Sunday Times, Birdsong is at number five, Cool the Midwife um, is at number one in the nonfiction, and Warhorse is number one in children's. So it's just, that's kind of a snapshot of like how much TV and film just really, really drives the book sales. Um, and so from a commercial point of view, absolutely brilliant. From a sort of like, the heart of all kind of editors and publishers is that we want brilliant books to be read. So from a very emotional point of view, we love it too. And something that films have really done in the last couple of years is rescue authors from obscurity. So something like Tom Ford's super slick, beautiful version of a single man could have single-handedly rescued kind of Isherwood's reputation. There has been a lot of work done by kind of academics and authors who love him, writing biographies and collecting his letters. But in one fell swoop, the Tom Ford movie really just rescued it. And then from that, we saw the BBC sort of spin-off of Christopher and His Kind, which was all about uh, Christopher Isherwood's life. And it also meant that that growing popularity has meant that I've bought the whole of this author's backlist now. And I've always wanted to publish Christopher Isherwood, but now is the moment because we've seen all of this kind of extra film activity. So from that point of view, um, it's a big big win. Um, And I suppose the other thing to say about publishers, it's not um, what we also do is we watch what is happening in Hollywood and we watch sort of what is happening on our TV screens as well. So there was this ridiculous thing that ran in The Onion, the satirical paper last year, which is a publishing executive saying, Minotaurs are the new vampires. Um, And of course that's an exaggeration, but if we see something taking off in Hollywood, then that's sort of a trend that will follow. So 
Vintage, for example, last year bought a book called Warm Bodies, which is a really sort of sweet paranormal romance about zombies. Um, um, but, well, but there have also been things like Penguin Classics reissued this book called um, The Best of Everything by um, Rona Jaffa, and that is sort of directly off the back of the popularity of Mad Men. Or there was this um, classic book in Virago called The Group by Mary McCarthy, which has seen a really popular reissue because of everything to do with sex in the city, and it sort of it was inspired by that. Um, so the, from the publishing industry, that's kind of a bit of an intro, and then I've got a couple of sort of... I mean, even a bad film, I could, can say a bad film doesn't do bad things to the book. Um, Sales-wise, uh, I'm really sorry if I'm going to break someone's heart by saying how much I dislike the Time Traveler's Wife film adaptation, which was on television on yes. Sunday. Um, and it didn't, for me, capture and engage the heart in quite the same way. But um, that book had never got to number one in the UK or the US because Dan Brown was published in the same year. And when the film came out, it shot to number one. So. Even, and, and that's, I guess, something that's great about film adaptations is great books will always transcend it. And you prob I don't know if you've seen the terrible Gwyneth Paltrow, Great Expectations, but Dickens has not been harmed by that <laughs> treatment. More about the facts and the figures in a moment. I'm sure um, we'll, we'll get more about that. Benjamin, give us some idea of being at the heart of the storm, I guess. Uh, of, <coughs> of being played by Matt Damon. Yes, yes, well, that's a strange thing. Um, yeah, well, I'm Benjamin Mee, and um, they really did make my book into a film, uh, which was quite a surprise. Um, I always knew I was going to write a book about the events because uh, my background was a journalist. Um, I was living in France, uh, writing a book about animal intelligence, um, had a column in The Guardian, uh, had a pretty idyllic life, and then a, a broken-down zoo came up for sale, um, which my sister passed me the um, estate agent's details because... She was gathering uh, details for large houses to buy um, with my mother so that she could live uh, with extended members of her family. And this one came up. It, it had 12 bedrooms and uh, you know, enough bathrooms, and it was all broken down, needed lots of repair. And then you turn the page, and it's got seven tigers and three lions and four bears, and, and you, you know, everybody laughs. And then we just kept going back to thinking... Well, someone's going to buy it, you know, and if we, we decided it was worth visiting just to rule it out. Uh, and of course, once you'd seen it, that was it. We, we knew we had to do something um, because all those animals really would have been, probably three quarters of them would have been destroyed. Um, the next uh, bidder in the chain was going to turn it into a nursing home um, and a lot of, most of the animals wouldn't have been able to be uh, put anywhere else and so they'd have been destroyed. And we just thought, someone can do this and, and we really should uh, and something about it just sort of hit me inside and I thought even though I had I'd spent 10 years working to the point where I was living in the sunshine with bilingual children and you know working occasionally on the column and sort of dabbling on the book and spending a lot of time in the shops buying baguettes um, I thought well this zoo it really needs rescuing and also interest in animal intelligence, one day we can get chimpanzees, you know, how hard can it be? Quite hard actually is the answer to that. <laughs> We're a long way from chimpanzees. We're getting some Japanese macaques this year, um, which is a good stepping stone, but that's been five years of just consolidating the position. Um, 
But anyway, as a journalist, I, I thought this is even more interesting than DIY, which was the column I was writing in The Guardian. Um, uh, surely they're going to be interested in a column on this, but oddly they weren't. I, they, they accepted a few features over the years, um, uh, but I, I haven't been able to get the idea of, a, of a, the, the weekly drama of the column. Uh, the newspapers all seem to be shrinking at just the wrong time. Um, and I'm so busy actually running the zoo, so uh, I thought, oh, I'll write a book, get it all down, and crack on with you know, the rest of the stuff, which is actually uh, you know, making it happen. Um, it, I think it was Weinstein uh, automatically bought the film rights in the States. Uh, they had a 90-day option, and that must have flagged something up um, in the film world. Uh, Fox, when the 90 days were up, snapped it up, and I got a phone call saying, you know, we bought it, but don't get your hopes up because 90% of these things are shelved. Um, and then every few months, I got another phone call saying, ah, let's move forward to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage. And always down, down at the zoo, you're sort of engaged in something very earthy and, and uh, grounding. And you get this call with a sort of 001 in front of you. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. And uh, my favorite one was actually when I heard that Matt Damon was going to play me. And I was... I was, I was uh, unblocking the storm drain at the bottom of the drive, um, my arm right wedged in, trying to get this Coke can, and it's raining on me, there's a water down here, there's a river, I'm sitting in a river, and a bus went past and sloshed me like this, and it's the 001 code, so I took it, and they said, yeah, hi, I'm just on Sunset Boulevard, uh, just pulled it, great, that's nice for you, and um, Matt Damon has agreed to play you, I'm, what, you know. And then they said, got to go, bye. And then, then you know, it was like the, the sun had shone briefly on me from Sunset Boulevard and the skies opened with the rain again. And I didn't hear anything for another three months. Um, but things were moving forward. And, yeah, astonishingly, um, got to the point where uh, in December I sat in a cinema in New York and watched it um, open. And there it was, really genuinely on the screen, our story. Or a version of our story, which is the sort of the crux of it, isn't it? Because the book is never the same as the film. Um, am I rambling more than the five minutes? No. It's, it's fine. Anybody that wants to ask Ben any more questions about that process, I'm sure there will be a lot more questions about how, uh, how it was adapted, because there are major changes, aren't there? Not only just in location. So that's one very English, very British story that's taken to Hollywood. Another one of sorts, although it's a transatlantic deal that was done I suppose in your, almost in your back garden Revel guest at Hay what happened, how did you strike the deal between Michael Morpogo essentially and Steven Spielberg, how did you become the deal breaker? Well on the subject of how to turn a book into a script and a film I thought perhaps the most useful thing I can talk about is exactly that how this happened, it happened in a very unusual way and it happened in a way which I suppose is very beneficial to the writer and the author. Um, I read the book a long time ago. I never remember when things happened, but certainly 10 years or so. Loved it, read it to my grandchild. She loved it, tears in her eyes. And um, it said a lot of the things that I really wanted to uh, distribute as much as possible. And I'll tell you what they were in a minute. But um, I played around with it. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and so this was a new... Uh, direction for me, but because it didn't go very far because I didn't have enough money to buy the rights. But then one day, all the scriptwriters, which 
Amelia organizes at our house in the country, um, were there, and I sat next to Lee Hall, and um, he asked me what I was doing. Of course, I talked about his projects. And I said, well, I have a passion for this book and really would love to see it into a movie. And it, he said, yeah, well, that's, that would suit me very well. I'd love to do it. Very, very interested. So we considered how we'd do it. Uh, he got a great deal of money, and I, we couldn't afford to pay Michael. So we said that if he would not charge anything for his time until he actually was off the ground, I wouldn't. And if we could persuade Michael that he wouldn't, um, we would form the three musketeers and one for all and all for one so that every decision is taken by the three of us. That's particularly good for the author because they get very involved in, in, in the making of the, of the movie and the, or the writing of the script, which is as far as we got. The first decision was, of course, how to, whether it was going to be animation or live action. And uh, um, I think we all plumped for live action. I was very keen because I know nothing about animation, slightly more about an, of, of live action. So that's the way we went. And then we talked about what we thought the, that was important in the story, which basically was um, character formation. It was loyalty. It was bravery. It was the relationship that a human can form with an animal, in this case, the horse. And it was also about the horror of war. So, you know, we all agreed on what, in the final analysis, we would like people to come out of the movie, you know, impressed by or influenced by. And um, then we, we, the, the script was, by that time, our main problem was that in this book, Joey the horse, it's his story, and he talks all the time. Difficult in a movie. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to think of a way around, and, and, and Lee was very clever in that. And, and I think came up with a, a, a brilliant script, which then we had several um, um, drafts of. And we were just about to think that we were going to interest a studio in, in this, when um, Steven Spielberg, great friend and ally, saw the play, which is, if any of you haven't seen, just a marvelous theatrical experience, and, and loved it. Came, and she loved it. She said, Stephen, this is for you. He flies over in his jet. He sees the, 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 the play. He reads the book and says, you know, this is just for me. So that, of course, was very exciting to us. I mean, he's an amazing um, man, although we knew that we wouldn't have a great deal to do from that stage on with the making because he's such a brilliant uh, director that he's not going to accept a great deal of, of, of um, suggestions from anyone else. But I met him. And um, we spent an hour and a half together or something like that. And I asked him, who is the hero of this book? And when he said it was Joey the horse, and he clearly said other things that was very much in line with what Michael Lee and I wanted to do, I was thrilled and worried that he wouldn't actually choose it because he has 20 films that are with producers are all desperately trying to get him to direct them. But he did. He turned the thing around, and in six months we were shooting. Um, I think that perhaps. I mean, it's 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 just just on the difficulty of adapting. Uh, I don't know whether you want me to talk about this or whether you want me to talk about the, the next thing I might do. But let me let me save just that. save that. Okay. Save that because that's save. that's a really good story. Let's let's yeah. Uh, just just a couple of things on on, on the difficulty. But dif I think the major difficulty is deciding what you want to the film, the effect it has to have on people. 
And, and, and um, once you decide that, and then you decide how you're going to handle the book, and in, in, if it's Dickens, which characters you're going to use. If it's Warhorse, which is a very simple children's story, um, it's more how you're, going to, how you're going to affect it and put it on, on, on celluloid. But um, I know Andrew Davis, who came to our festival in Cartagena, says that um, the difficulty is that very often scriptwriters lose the comedy in, in, in a book. And, of course, if you lose that, um, or if you choose the wrong characters to cut out, you're in big trouble. I think it's probably... I, I've gone on probably too long. No, it's fine. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, yeah. Amazing stories. Amelia Granger, give us a sense of your role in this, in this chemistry, in the synthesis between uh, books and films. Um, well, I suppose I'm... We're, well, I, or working title, we're the people who are the recipients of the books. Um, uh, and um, uh, it's our job to identify um, material that, is, that feels cinematic and feels that um, it will have an audience. Um, I suppose just to sort of contextualise that, um, we, I, I, I would go as far as saying 50% of our film slate is based on underlying material, either books or existing a play or um, something where you can always go back to the source material and where there is already an inbuilt audience because when it comes to actually getting a film made, the very first question that you ask yourself is who is going to go and see this? And so if there is already a great readership for a, of a book, you've already got that audience um, and it's a very big step in the path to either financing or casting or um, actually putting the very intricate parts for film together. Um, so that's why we like basing films and, uh, or turning books into films. It's good if there's an existing audience, if it's been a successful book already. Yeah. So that goes to the top of the pile. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and um, I think, you know, your list of Oscar Best Film nominations and BAFTA Best Film nominations speaks to that. Yes, yes. Um, so... Um, Sometimes it is the surprising books that get turned into the best films. Sometimes not even the best books. Mario Puzo's The Godfather was not one of the best books of all time, but probably one of the best films of all time. So let's, um, let's open this up to the floor. If people have questions, put your hand high in the air. We have some roving microphones. If you could introduce yourself, if um, you're asking a question from a particular standpoint, if, um, if you see one of the people with the microphones around, around you, then just grab their attention. Let me just get things started, first of all. Just get some questions going in, in your minds. But let me just put this to the, to the audience before we do. Has it been, as I suggested at the beginning, and maybe Amelia, I'll come back to you first of all, has it, it, does it feel like more books are being turned into films? I know it's always been the case when you go back through film history, but is it just a strange year this year, a golden year? Is it, um, uh, is it a particularly fertile relationship at the no, moment? No, I think if you looked at the list last year, I mean, I'd have to look at the lists yeah. just to, to see whether that was the case. But you have no country for old men, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, uh, there will be blood. They, they were all, yeah. Those were all books. Um, and um, 
I think that you know, the th some of the films this year have been in development for a long time. We Need to Talk About Kevin has been in development for, uh, for several years. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we have obviously um, been very fortunate enough to get Tinker Taylor to the screen, um, and that's been a five-year process. Um, uh, so I think it's just a, you know, a crop of very good titles. <laughs> Let's get some questions going. Hand straight up here from the gentleman in the second row there. Third. Yeah. Hi, my name's uh, Neil Flash. I'm from a communications agency called Tonic. Um, my orientation for my question is from a, a personal one. Um, and I guess it, it potentially goes to, um, to Amelia and to Laura. Um, are, there any, are there any books that you've seen sort of pass through your hands that you've just felt were impossible to turn into a screenplay or a movie or, you know, either due to time constraints or characters. Because I, I watched Birdsong over the last couple of weeks on the TV and I was surprised that one third of the story was missing, the later part. And, you know, perhaps the motivations for why, you know, that was the case. Laura, Laura let's, start, let's start with... Project Birdsong. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> The 19, ooh, I thought it was really wise to cut the modern plot because so much of it seems to do a good adaptation seems to be doing a good editing job as in you can't have everything you can't compress 200 pages into 2 hours and when they try when you see someone try and do that and it's slavishly kind of um, faithful that's when I think you have a really boring adaptation I actually would say I think it was a really strong and kind of brave move to take uh, out the modern Birdsong's an interesting example um, we originally optioned it for a film a long time ago, I think something like 12 years ago, and I actually was sort of within my team, we worked on the film adaptation up until 18 months or so ago, um, and the script never worked as a 120-page, one-and-a-half, two-hour film. It was impossible to get that story in three, t certainly in three time frames, and we, there, there are versions of the script where we did have the three time frames into a, a film that was going to be makeable and watchable. So we took various decisions along the way and in fact when we decided to do it as a TV piece it suddenly made a great deal of sense to do it in two parts but also not to have that the, the, the modern day story for all sorts of reasons because in fact when you go back to the book and the, the present day story actually takes place in the 1970s now in order for the generational links to work so we were at one point toying with the idea of making it the great grand you know it kind of got very complicated so for those reasons and actually I think as a piece it worked better to tell it in the two time frames and to keep it um, in that in that structure and as the go I presume you had to act as the go between in effect between Sebastian folks and and whoever was yeah, and adapting it so do, do you have to get his blessing do you sit down and say we're gonna have to lose this bit Sebastian um, sorry I mean, the author, I mean, that's one thing I was going to talk about anyway. Um, um, you know, um, the, it, you sometimes have different, you, have, you can have different relationships with authors on different projects, and I don't know what 
Benjamin's deal was on his book and how many, how much consultation you had officially. Or, I mean, the at the outset you would always set out to. Um, you always want your author on side. It's your. It's a much happier journey if your author is pleased with the project, pleased with the script, wants to come to the premiere, wants to say nice things about the film, um, because we're all trying to make a film that an audience wants to go and see. Um, uh, I don't know what Sebastian's position was officially, but for right. example on Atonement, Ian McEwan was an executive producer and so mm. had a lot more right. involvement. And yeah. that's, you know, it, it just depends on where you start out from at the beginning well, of your Well, project. let's just, just bring Benjamin in here, because you are having to lose, you know, some, possibly some of your favourite scenes, but mm. you lose not only a scene, you lose a whole location. It moved from Dartmoor to, where was it, Reset, Pennsylvania? It's, no, California. California. Yeah. Everything has to be set in, everything has to be set in California. People don't want to see the rain on Dartmoor. Right. Uh, except in Warhorse, obviously. They want to, they want to see uh, sunshine in California. Um, and they explained this to me in, in detail. It's quite interesting. My agent, Patrick, said, they're going to call you, they're going to make some changes. Just say yes. He said, if, if, they, if they want to set the film on Mars, he said, say yes. Um, and I, but I did try to persuade them to film at Dartmoor, um, partly because we were struggling financially enormously, and I thought they'd pay a huge location fee, if nothing else. Um, and also, there was the set. You know, it's how, I knew how expensive it is to, to build a zoo, and to build one from scratch seemed a little bit of a waste of money. Um, you bought a zoo, literally. You did buy a zoo, so they're yeah. sitting there ready. Here is the zoo that were you we bought. Upset by you know, that? I mean, I know your agent was pressing you to take <laughs> to say yes, but we we sit there thinking, please come on. Oh, I, come I really did want them to come, yeah. um, partly for authenticity and the control part. Um, I mean, you were talking about the Three Musketeers and having this fantastic involvement of the of the, of the writer, um, and they were very certainly very keen to keep me on side. Um, and I you was. Keep I was going to say keep me sweet. Yeah. I didn't mean it to be quite so uh, cynical as that, but I'm sure it was. <laughs> but uh, no, they, they they wanted me to be on side, and I was because from a, from an early age I'd wanted to be a writer, and I'd been interested. I remember going to the cinema with my dad. We'd both read a Robert Ludlum book, which is an enormously complicated plot, and we went and saw the film, and there was about an eighth of it in the in the film, and we were both sort of a bit disgruntled. But I began to realise you cannot do it in two hours or one and a half hours. You just can't get that stuff in there. And if you try, it's it, it's it's inappropriate. But also, if you're the author and you complain about that, then you haven't understood the situation properly. And that was that was my thing. I I thought it's easy to stamp and make a make a fuss and say, but I said this at this point and you've changed it. But it's a totally different medium and it has different constraints. I'm aware there's loads of questions being formulated out there. I just want to just another quick question to Revel before we do that, because we're talking about stripping out plot and location. Was it the other way around with Michael Morpurgo's War Horse? Because, as you say, not only is the story told from Joey, the horse's point of view, but it's a kid's book. So are you, for the film adaptation, are you having to add scenario rather than strip it away? I think we added scenario, but also the book... Uh, is far tougher mm. than, the, than the film because the film is four, it's a, it's a 12. So, you know, it's, it's four families and actually eight, seven, eight-year-old girls and boys can go. So it, it is different in that way. We really wanted uh, all of us, and, and Lee did, keep to the, keep to the, the book as, 
as clearly as we could. So although the spine of the story is there, there are different ways of saying what that particular sequence might say in the book. Um, but, and, and parts of it are, are left out and parts of it are added in. So Angela Frayer, I'm a TV producer but not in drama. And I wanted to just find out generally from the, from the panel and particularly from Benjamin, you said sort of quite casually, oh, the book was picked up by Weinstein and then by Fox. So it was a very easy process. Number one, what was the process? Were you involved in it? How long did it take? Weinstein is a, a, a film company as well, isn't it? So they automatically buy the film rights. And that was, in my mind, that was how it became a film option of any, you know, once Weinstein had got it, it therefore it came into existence. Um, it, I mean, it was on a bestseller list in California uh, at the time. I did a tour of the States, which went down quite well. And um, so someone out there, you know, people out there were reading it. Um, but I think I, I sort of, in my mind, I, I just imagine that's how it hit the scene. And once it's hit the scene, they've got it, so I want it. You know, and it became a sort of little scrabble. Um, and amazingly, it, people, people took an interest. Um, from a very early stage at Fox, there was a, the producer, Julie Yorn, um, was the one who, who called me regularly to give me updates. And she's a rising star in Fox. Her last production had involved Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, uh, and was very successful. So he was in the frame to play me for a long time. And then they start mentioning all these other names. You're thinking, is that a good thing? Who did you want? Uh, and don't say Matt Damon. Well, actually, no, they did ask me for a list of people, and Matt Damon was top of it. Um, I, I asked friends, I, you can't, I mean, it's a dinner party thing, isn't it? Who would play you in a film? And I, I, I don't play that game, I don't have a list. And so I asked, I asked my friends, and the, the first one they suggested was Hugh Grant. And I'm thinking, eh, really? Um, Ewan McGregor was a great, I thought, now that is a film I would go and see. Um, but they said, He's not a big enough star, Ben. And I thought, whoa, you reach for some, reach for some, I thought, is, is, is there an A-plus list? And um, so he said, any A-list would talk, so it'd be the Fox Christmas release. Um, and a friend said, Matt Damon, and I'd, I'd always been a fan. I'd watched the Bourne films when I was in France. And when you're in a foreign country, you, you just crave anything in your language. And so I watched the making of the Bourne film and the director's cut and all that. And there was Matt Damon, being a nice guy, you know, off camera, just hanging out, and I thought, he's actually a, a decent bloke. And, um, he's, you know, if, if it was Brad Pitt who, or, or Clooney or someone like that, you'd never get over the fact that it was them, whereas Matt Damon is kind of grounded and, you know, I, I like that about him. And he's got a tremendous sense of humor. Um, and although there's, you know, tragedy and hardship in the book, um, I tried to put humor in it as well. And... I, I knew that if, if they kept that in the script, he'd be able to deliver it, and he did, he did a bit. Back to basics and ask a question really about um, the, the original source of all this material. Um, Sebastian Foltz's Birdsong was, the, the idea that kick-started that was a feature that he wrote for The Independent when he was sent off or asked to go off with a trip of war veterans to visit the battlefields when there were still First World War veterans, and that then inspired the book. Um, Benjamin's um, film hasn't been inspired by a book, but he was writing a column for a newspaper that was obviously a kind of what you know we call in the trade. I'm a, I'm a sorry, I'm Hilly James. I'm a journalist and editor. Is a you know it's a good gig and it gives you some headspace to think about other things. I mean, we've talked about Michael Walpurgo and Cormac McCarthy, who who aren't journalists, but 
you know, journalism, that kind of journalism that Sebastian was doing then is shrinking very fast. Laura's talked about how fewer and fewer books are being published. Um, I'm just interested in the longer term how the filmmakers are going to get, where are your ideas going to come from when the original sources for the inspiration are drying up to a certain extent? There's more books being published than ever before. So it's more how audiences discover them that the publishers have got to struggle with at the moment. But um, I don't think, I don't know, personally, I don't think you'll ever run out of inspiration. There are so, and also there are now people redoing films that have been done before based on books. So Brighton Rock was done last year, which is brave after the Attenborough yeah. one. So you do get sort of remakes of famous book adaptations yeah. as I, well. Let's get Amelia's response to that. But let me just actually ask you about Dickens because there's these figures that came out today. Somebody's done a Dickens audit, £280 million a year to the UK economy, Dickens is worth, apparently. And that includes... Now, I, I, I find these... I don't know how they've broken these figures down. £64 million in film and DVD sales. Now, I can't believe that's just UK... Because we're also looking at, sorry, that's 64 million in theatrical productions, 34 million film and DVD sales, but the sales of Dickens' books and books about Dickens worth nearly three million pounds a year. So you're not running short of source material when it comes to, to Charles Dickens, are you? No, absolutely not. I mean, and, and he's sort of like an endless um, sort of inspiration point for adaptations and like one of the best ones I've ever seen was the Bleak House one in I think it was 2005 on television which was this perfect marriage of form and content because they, they sort of mirrored the serialization that Bleak House first appeared in so I think people can carry on being ingenious and clever with the way they do their adaptations um, but yeah I mean those figures I don't know what to say about those figures they're astonishing <laughs> yeah. I don't know where they've got them from <laughs> well it's actually a BBC producer who has done this audit I think it's part of a you know to tie in with the 200th birthday today. It was the Dickens theme park. I think £280 million a year, I mean, includes tourism, tea towels, the lot. But I mean, I, I do think that, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm not disputing, uh, you know, the, the audit done by a BBC colleague, but uh, maybe they're global sales that have been extrapolated somehow. Um, uh, Amelia, does it feel from your point of view that you are having to scrabble around looking for source material? Or are you inundated on a daily basis? No, I think kind of going in, I think, well, I've got two responses to that. Um, first of all, the rise of the internet and blogging and the sort of the, the written word doesn't stop and voices don't stop. So whereas before we might have looked in a newspaper at columns and we have, and um, Bridget Jones was a column when we originally optioned it. Um, and we optioned, we, we, we've optioned a couple of columns since then that haven't necessarily made it to the screen. But we certainly keep, try and keep on top of the blogosphere and any kind of strong voices coming through um, those routes. Stories, newspapers. I mean, I have somebody, I have an intern in our office who, spent, who every day goes through the newspapers looking for real-life stories that might have film um, potential or inspiration and sometimes those stories take flight like um, the piano man who turned up on a beach and had lost his memory you know yeah. for two weeks Hollywood was chasing that story and you know we had pulled out the article when it first appeared um, so so 
The generation of human interest stories um, certainly doesn't feel like it will ever dry up. Um, and then secondly, um, there is the revisiting of what I would, what we would call brands, Dickens being a brand, Sherlock Holmes being a brand, um, uh, and any other examples like that. Um, Tinker Tailor, to be honest, uh, fits into that category for us. It's the Le Carre brand that exists, the TV series existed, um, and we were fortunate enough to get the rights to make a new feature film which enhances that brand, reinvents that brand, appeals hopefully to the audience who have already bought into that brand. So uh, we would always look at existing material and, and um, look at ways of reinventing it. I think the, Sherlock, the recent Sherlock Holmes franchise has done that incredibly well, both the TV version and the Guy Ritchie films. And how many Le Carre books do you have the rights to? I mean, will there be Gary Oldman in The Spy Who Came In From I The Cold know. and Smiley's People? I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the original, I mean, Le Carre historically has always been optioned, so those rights are very complicated. But, but you don't see it as a franchise now? This is not going to be a film every couple of years with I don't know. Oldman returning? I don't know. <laughs> there was another question here. We've got a question down at the front. Name's David Brown, serial entrepreneur. Uh, writing five books, but I'm probably going to be played by Phil Collins if one of them does get to film. <coughs> um, I guess my uh, two-part question, first part directed to Laura. Um, I had to write it down because my memory is awful. Um, does the publisher's aspiration for film rights undermine the craft of writing and dumb down writing to popular culture levels? And do you think, I guess second part of the question, to the British Warhorse contingent, when I heard Spielberg was producing it, having a weekend house uh, in Bath, just outside Bath where they filmed all of it, I wanted to be sick when I heard Spielberg had got, Spielberg got the rights, because I thought, here comes a slushy, a romantic movie, and that's not what Warhorse is. Does the British contingent regret selling it to a formulaic film producer like Spielberg, or are they just particularly happy with the financial returns therein? Can I, can I just ask quickly, have you seen the film? I haven't seen the film and I don't want so to. So you, you may go there and change your mind. Well, I, I will, but then Spielberg's had a, had a, a, a brain implant, a transplant, if that's been the case, I think. No. Which part of that question should we take first? <laughs> Revel. Well, you haven't seen the film. I have to, I have to underline that. But I, what I would say is, yes, I was very happy that it should be he. I wouldn't have been happy if it had been anyone. I think he's a, a genius filmmaker, and he uh, is a very, he's a very generous filmmaker, and he certainly included the Three Musketeers fully in what he did, which, which warmed our hearts. Um, I don't think it's overly sentimental. Yes, it's sentimental, but the subject that it covers is a very emotional uh, subject, and I think it's also uplifting. So, uh, you know, there are so many films that become made out of a book. Everyone sees a different thing in a book. But I think what he saw in the book, and what he, yes, very emotionally predicted, which you know he's going to do that, um, is are the right ones. So I was very happy. Uh, I'll just come to your first part of the question, actually. I mean, I think you've possibly undermined your chances of having any of your five books being produced <laughs> by Revel Guest. But if I just bring us back to your first part, when I think you were asking whether the quality of books is being dumbed down because of the chance of getting them filmed. Let, actually, Laura, let me ask you, and I know you're working within the vintage classics 
section, but you're in the publishing oh, my industry. Job is, yeah, Do yeah. you suspect that increasingly authors, when they sit down at their typewriter or word com their computer, word processor, that they have half an eye on a book and half an eye on a film adaptation? I don't if, God, for as many types of books and authors, there's going to be a different answer. I don't think that we can say we've seen a dumbing down purely because of film um, adaptations. I think that when an author is sitting on an own in their room with a blank sheet of paper in front of them, the main thing for most authors is plot and characterization, which is also what film companies are looking for. So there is a happy alliance there. Um, I very rarely read a book and think, this guy was writing it because he wanted a film made. Um, and, uh, but that, you know, I work in vintage classics, but the other books that um, I work on are for vintage, which is the literary house of, of part of Random House. Um, and I don't know, I think it's a really cynical um, thing to think that authors set out to do that. I don't think they do. I think most people want to tell a story. And yes, if the, when we fall in love with a book, and we want to publish it, then we pass it on to film companies. Um, it's, it's quite rare that something would get optioned and then get published, I think. Um, I think that did happen to the guy who wrote Sideways. It was op optioned as a film before a publisher picked it up. But generally, we buy it as a book first because we believe in it. And as I said, it's really hard for us to get attention for books. Um, and so we have to really fall in love with it. And we, you know, if, if Hollywood is also looking at something and we think somebody's a bit interested in it, then that probably does pique our interest more. But I don't think it starts at the act of creation by the author. Maybe I'm being very naive, yeah. but I, I really don't think... Pay Authors don't get paid enough to do it, not for the love of it. <laughs> and, and the media, are you, when you are looking at books that, that you may then take to a producer or you think could be adapted for the big screen, are you reading them as filmic books? Do they have to immediately suggest scenes in your mind or do you just leave that to the, the screenwriter? Uh, no, and I'd say, I'd say you know, if, I, if, 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 I read, if we read a book and you felt that it was written as if the author had had one eye on the film, it kind of puts you off a bit. <laughs> What you're looking for is a really rich piece of material that has great characters and a great story. And when you're developing the script, you're constantly going, certainly part of my job is to constantly go back to the book, particularly if you get to a point in this, with a character where you're sort of thinking, how would they behave? And we sit there and with the book, we go, but this is what they said in the book. And um, try and sort of bring some of that into the, into the script. I ha we have we have gone after books previously, and certainly in Hollywood, or in you know there are there are books that have been optioned for film that may have felt or read more filmic, and they tend to be books that have a really high concept idea at the heart of it. So it's a very easy pitch, um, and it's um, and it's and it's a book or it's a story where you feel that you can. Um, enhance it by bringing it to the screen in, in some ways. Um, with, a more, with a classic like Corelli's or a, a modern classic such as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or Corelli's Mandolin or Atonement, those books are such rich pieces of literature that you feel that you have enough to make a film out of and make the best film version of that story. It's interesting you say the pitch is very important. Sometimes that's to do with the title. I mean, you think about Hugo, adapted from the invention of Hugo Cabret. So the title, but Ben, your title, it, it wasn't changed. We bought a zoo. Mm. It, 
it does what it says on the tip. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those times. I mean, that was, that was interesting. Again, it goes back to my agent. We, we didn't, weren't sure what we were going to call it. And he just said, oh, just, we bought a zoo envelope. You know, there you go. Now I'll write the book and we'll think of the title later. It was going to be called The Me Family and Other Animals at one point. Um, which is a little bit too clever, and um, so we bought a zoo stuck, and now it's, it's out, out there on the screen. I, I never, uh, for one moment, was writing it thinking that it would be made into a film. I would just say, that you have been known to be interested in something because the title's fantastic. <laughs> Sometimes it tends to be a piece of non, it, it might be non fiction or it might be something which might form part of I mean, some, there have been some projects we've developed where we've actually optioned two or three pieces of material if, especially if it's a, a historical piece or a real life story and you might option one of those pieces because the title is great and Can you give us an example? No, probably not <laughs> I, I, I would like to say that one of the difficulties for an independent producer is actually getting the rights because a lot of the big companies um, buy options in books that they may make and so that they, they may have 20 or 30 not, maybe I'm not sure you don't but I mean lots of bands that, that are on a long list and so there, you know I certainly have two books that I'm very interested in and I've been trying to trace where the option is because it's been passed from company to company and I can't find it This is a good time for you to mention the Steinbeck actually I know you wanted to talk about it um, Sorry we're going to get to the next question and, but let me, let me oh, just yeah. ask Revel to talk about your next project because you say you're looking for projects. You know what you want to be made as the next film from your... So I was going to war well, stable, it, it, but, it, I, have, um, I have two or three, but <laughs> it's not this as far from Warhorse as you yeah. can get. But what interests me in The Moon is Down, which is a very early book that John Steinbeck wrote in, in, in 1942 when America was not in the war and there were a lot of people within America who, who thought they never should be, having been involved in the First World War, and um, a lot who, who felt that they've got to do their best. He was asked to write a, a, a promotion, a PR piece, um, to, to send over to Europe, particularly to the countries that were being invaded. And so this is the, that's the story, which is a, a, a very vivid little story that could be anywhere. So it's a, it's a community that has very strong customs and very strong loyalties, invaded by a force, any force. And it's the relationship between the force and, and, the, 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 and, and the residents. Um, what's interesting about this, to me, is that at that moment in Steinbeck's life, it was a fascinating time. And he, when he wrote this, this book was, was um, anybody who was found with it in, in Europe was immediately shot because it was considered so effective. So why I like it and why I want to do it is because of what it says and the, the interest that it, that it would bring to, to both character and to a moment in history. My name's uh, Janice Warren. I'm a writer and journalist. And um, my question is, uh, it, it follows on uh, from an earlier one, but I'm currently just about to uh, hand in a story to Michael Morpurgo's publisher. It's a, it's a book set in uh, apartheid South Africa, but it's a little boy, so it's a sort of teenage novel. Um, yes, and um, I just... No, yeah, yeah, it's a pitch, it is a pitch. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was just wondering, in a kind of slightly self-interested way, whether you always wait for books to come out and become bestsellers before you uh, are interested in, in optioning them. Um, it is only the first of two books I'm writing. I've got 
due this year, but this is the one on my mind. In fact, I shouldn't really be here. I should be in Sussex writing, as I work full-time as well. Um, so I just wondered if there, you know, if there was any, um, any way that you are interested in actually seeing early material or seeing something when it's already just gone to the publisher rather than actually being out on the streets. Well, I think that it's, it's a wonderful story. It's a story of alarm in, 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 in South Africa. And it's certainly one I've been interested in and talked to him about. The great thing about Michael's work, and he's you know, done 120 books, is that all of them have a great story. And it's just a question of which story um, you know, sets you off and makes you think, I want to do it. And certainly it's good. He, you know he's having, I think, two other books at the moment. Um, private, uh, um, what's it called? Yeah, Private Peaceful is being made on a low budget. I mean, the War Horse was a very high budget, and we had 120 horses to play with, and 14 joeys, and you know, 800 people on the set. So it was like a man with all the toys that you could ever have, a small boy, and you know, having fun with them. Um, but it's also, uh, this book, if I ever do it, um, will not be a big budget because it's, it's not a commercial in any way. But um, yes, I think it's a very nice book. And just to follow on to that too, Amelia, the idea of books being, or early drafts being looked at. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you, this is, I thought this was quite interesting, that you optioned Bridget Jones' diaries while they were still being written as columns. It wasn't even a book then. Slightly before my time, so um, not something that I was involved with personally. I think uh, Helen was, I think that she was, I think they were becoming a book, but it was before the book was published. Yeah. Um, but going back to your specific question, it's, it's so competitive now, the book to film process all the big studios have officers and scouts who literally spend their days talking to the publishing industry talking to agents scouring um, uh, for new material and so we have to look at material very early on and that can be that can be good and that can be bad so I think in the process in 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 the in an example being something like Benjamin's book I your book was a proposal wasn't it was it originally a, a proposal? when it was optioned when it was optioned or was it the yeah, let me think uh, I can't remember <laughs> but I, I remember seeing it very uh, I think very very early and and you could kind of you know without actually reading you could kind of get at your uh, an idea of what that story was was going to was going to be and there was a huge, I mean, I remember, you know, there was a huge, there was huge interest. All the phones started buzzing, New York ringing, have you got it? Can I get it? Who's got it? So-and-so's got it, you know. Um, and that's what happens if something gets interest from a big producer or a studio. And at that point, every, you know, it, 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 it happens very quickly. So now, what was it about it that made you excited? What element in well, that story? Well, it, it, it's talking about the process. I'm just talking about the process, and that's just an, ex, an example. So, I mean, that can be... I mean, often books are bought in that way, but then, you know, the author might not actually deliver the manuscript or the book will get published and sink without a trace. And that's just the gamble that you play at that level. Um, uh, the producer of a film called Africa, Africa United is from somewhere near Tunbridge Wells, so... There was a showing of the film at the Trinity in Tunbridge Wells. I went to it about six months ago, and I went to talk to her afterwards, and she was very interested. I was still you know, writing the book, obviously, at that point, in an earlier way. Very, very interested, but actually my publishers told me to kind of 
hang back a bit until it was published. So quite, I'm quite interested in, in the process because of that. Well, if, and I would have given you the same advice because if there is interest from a producer of, I mean, and there might be interest from elsewhere, so you would rather your material be kind of sent out into the open market and see what the best price, best package, best configuration of producers, directors, production companies you could you could get. So you're, she's right; they're right to tell you to just wait and 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 hold off. Um, sometimes it happens quicker than that. Sometimes you, you can end up in a very aggressive situation where somebody just wants it and will pay large amounts of money to take it off the table, but that happens less now in our new... Uh, John, I'm Chantal Rickards from Media Agency, MEC in London. Um, I'm, it's a comment and a question. The comment is, is this a conflation of creativity? Is the book of the film of the T-shirt of the Happy Meal stifling creative output? Is it absorbing enormous amounts of money that could be spread around to create and generate fantastic, interesting new ideas? And my question really is for the filmmakers, isn't it more interesting and more exciting and more wonderful to bring to the world something that's entirely new that isn't a slightly thumbed copy that most of us have read on a beach somewhere, that is more encapsulating and wonderful because it's new, not just because it's a copy of something else that's been created in a separate medium. So you're thinking in terms of films around at the moment in contention for awards, Tree of Life, Terence Malick, Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen. Is it not more exciting to go to the cinema to see a film which is a film which is a film? More exciting. Um, I think it's um, equally satisfying, um, and I think it boils down, you know, boils down to whether it's a good film or not, um, and whether it's based on a book or whether it's an original piece of material, becomes uh, irrelevant. Um, a adaptation of a film, I think, you know, is always is should always be looked at as a remix in of a or a, a resample of an existing piece of material and, um, and should be looked at through different eyes uh, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it depends on your personal relationship with the book. But it is, and it is very exciting if something completely new and fresh appears like a, you know, Tarantino film or, um, but, you know, it's, they're few and far between. Right, I think the best sort of, Anthony Mangella, when he talked about adaptations, he said um, the screenplay is much more like a kind of architectural drawing than it is a piece of literature, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it because it is, of course, the book is really important and the, these film people have to tread that really delicate line between independence and kind of reverence as well. But I think what he does really well and what the best type of films do really well from adaptations is they make something incredibly fresh out of it. And something that he did in, say, The Talented Mr. Ripley, so in the book, the guy is obsessed with modern art. In the film, he's obsessed with jazz. And it works so beautifully. It's such an ingenious kind of adaptation, a perfect adaptation, because it brings a kind of lusciousness and it brings a brilliant score to the film as well. So it's that kind of enhancing it and bringing it to a 3D way that, you know, it just makes something very fresh of it, I think. So I don't think we can say they're not excellent and just because they're not new. And a quick word from Revel on that same uh, issue. I actually agree with you. And, um, but, but the most difficult thing and the most creative moment in, make, in, in filmmaking is that somebody signs a check. And it's a good deal easier to sign a check for a book or a play than it is. I was just um, 
definitely. It is a commercial industry and we're in it to make, a, you know, as a, as a business proposition and it's very hard to get, uh, uh, it, you know, it's very hard to get a film finance full stop uh, and it's very hard to grow those filmmakers and writers who, who are coming up with original um, material. I think if you went to the Biffers rather than the BAFTAs, yeah. for example, the list of short, short list of best films were not necessarily based on no. books. They were original pieces. And you talk about the Happy Meal thing, everything being bundled together. You can have, I mean, you can have the happy accident or the, well, I suppose, the, the creativity by design. I was talking to Michael Winterbottom recently, and his new film is an adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and it's set in India, modern-day India. This is a film that's out, I think, in end of March. And an absolutely fantastic vision of India, and of course he's done it before with Jude, and he's done a sort of, he's played with the Mayor of Casterbridge as well. And he's obsessed by Thomas Hardy, and brings a new perspective. It was a very faithful adaptation, I think, of Jude the Obscure, but this is an absolutely new view of Tess of the Durbervilles. Keeps the essence of the narrative of the story of the drama. But actually, I've seen the film, and I think it gives you not only a new perspective on modern India, and about that being in parallel to Victorian Britain, about industrialization, about the pressures on society, but actually makes you go back and reread the Hardy in a different way. And, so, and I suppose, Laura, that's what you're hoping for with the yeah. best adaptation. Yeah, it? exactly. And then you think of something like Apocalypse Now, and it's sort of, you can't yeah. even see the source material anymore, but there is that link and people do sort of see it and go back to the original, the part of darkness. So. Let's keep it moving along, gentlemen there. Victor Keegan, uh, writer, journalist. So far we've been talking about people writing books and then being published as books or on devices which are very similar, then put onto film on celluloid or on DVDs. Uh, what is the prospect for a technological change? We've already seen the first um, full-length films made from mobile phones. Will they one day be watched on mobile phones? Will the whole industry be disintermediated, the middle people disappearing? Uh, and if so, how will that change it for the author? Will we be able to have publish, do our own films. That's a question more about technology, isn't it, than the idea of adaptation from literature. But you, are, you, are you wondering whether the books, the adaptations, will be forced out in this? Well, instead of ha having to go through all the, the middle people and get all these options and everything else, will people be able to, uh, to do the transition from writing to their own film in the same way that people already have in music, whether uh, to a great extent the middle people have been, been removed? Uh, and this hasn't happened in your industry, and I'm just wondering whether it's a question of time. No, that is a really interesting question, isn't it? Increasingly, because we have access to technology, you could shoot a film here in this room tonight, we could edit it on a laptop, we could distribute, get it out on the internet within a couple of hours. More direct, accessible approach. So, I mean, what, how will that affect the, the adaptation, the literary aspect of this discussion? Uh... <laughs> well, I think if you did that and it made money, then there would be an issue to sort out as to who earned the money from the film that we made you know, in the room. And I think that is the crux of the, you know, unfortunately, uh, if you're talking about recent source material, there is always somebody who owns or has um, uh, acclaimed those rights. But if you're talking about the classics and um, material that, or books that are um, out of copyright, then there's nothing to stop. There's nothing to stop anybody. Um, and you know, arguably, people are already doing that through YouTube and other 
you know, are making their own films. The, yes. the, we, again, part of the, you know, looking for source material, we sort of try and keep an eye on the YouTube virals that um, happen. And we were watching the Charlie bit my finger um, virals the other day in the office. Uh, and those, I think that family has made quite a lot of money out of Charlie bit my finger, which is a film on the internet that they are filming and producing and putting out there themselves. Trouble ahead for books and films, this new technology, isn't it? I mean, um, the, a friend of mine a while ago was just setting up a new magazine and he said he had, a, had to stop and think, is he like a farmer at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, just investing in you know, a load of plough horses, no idea that there's a steam uh, device around the corner about to completely change the landscape beyond any imagination. And I think if you go into publishers' offices now, you, there's a sort of austerity about it that they're not used to, uh, and things are moving so quickly. Um, it's impossible to predict even in five years. I mean, that there was a, that was it the first I don't know the film that they shot entirely on the new iPhone on a tube train um, was incredibly successful. And it was just four kids with a new you know four hundred dollar iPhone and some very slick editing skills, and that's what people wanted to see. You know, and everyone else is going, but we spent fifty million dollars on this. And yeah. He said, yeah, yeah, but we like this stuff, and it's gonna it's all gonna change. I think really dramatically quite soon. Revel, uh, sorry, I think it will happen. And I think it will have an enormous effect on, on filmmaking, as it will on books, because there will be, instead of 20 people deciding what books and what films will be made, it will be a choice of, of, of the pub general public. I think it's very interesting, and who knows what it's going to be like, and who knows what effect it will have on, the, on literature, but I think it's quite good in some respects. Um, I remember seeing uh, somewhere that when they adapted Where the Wild Things Are for film, it took kind of ages to do, because it was obviously quite a short children's picture book um, that lots of people love and they would make lots of people angry if it went wrong. Um, and I remember reading somewhere that uh, when they, the creative team were kind of discussing all the choices, they had this big argument about whether the pet dog should be kept black or made white. And, um, and so I wonder if, because there, there's such huge creative teams work, and, and film is such a collaborative enterprise, is there a temptation to kind of tinker a bit too much or to for too many people to want to put their mark on something, so you, you almost have a uh, death by focus group kind of effect. Well, you would always, too many cooks. Yeah, oh, sometimes. I mean, you're talking about... I mean, in the, kind of, in the sort of the studio system, uh, you are talking about enormous amounts of money and risk, and so you would always try and minimise the risks that you take by ensuring that you have a very good script, a very good director, and hope within that mix there is a, an authorial voice and um, chief at the helm. Um, and, you know, that's what you would always aim to do. Yeah. And Laura, as you said, even a badly made film of a really good book tends to make money for you as a publisher. As a publisher, yeah. So you hope that the author will be happy with the royalty statement, even if the film horrifies them. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of other truly bad films. Uh, Troy? Bonfire of the Oh, that's terrible, that film. Yeah, that is a really terrible film <laughs> of a really fantastic book. But maybe, you know what, that might be more... The book is huge, it's complex. So much of that book works around his language, the kind of roiling 
humorous, energetic state of the language in that book just drives you through an enormous book. And that is very hard to find. And I do wonder, with someone like Martin Amos, I enjoy that in his um, language as well. And I haven't seen any good adaptations of Martin Amos's work. And I wonder whether maybe there are some people who, um, I think it was your question earlier, that maybe they don't lend themselves to films and TV um, productions. Could do money, couldn't he? I mean, they're, yeah, they're almost, that's the next the thing. Place, yeah, because you know? Amos is so linguistically dazzling. That's what it's about. But Tarantino is sort of visually uh, and irreverent. I think that's the maybe that would work. My name is Haley Barnard. I'm an agent, and uh, the one of the writers that I represent has just had a film. Uh, sorry, she's had their book optioned. Uh, by exec producer. I'm wondering, is there a role for the writer in helping the exec producer attract a big studio? And if so, what could they do to help? Revel. Well, I, th I think so. It, it, what attracts a big studio? I mean, <coughs> the, the, the story, um, if there is a, the, the, the scriptwriter, most importantly, the, 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 if there's an actor involved or, or, or the director. I mean, I... I it's very hard to see into the parts of the of the of the studios, and you know you're going you're going to studios. Um, it's very something that that is relevant to today, and people will answer some of their questions as well as tell a great story. Will always win hearts. Amelia, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the writer. You know, can be very supportive of um, the production companies' intentions and points, point of view for, for their book. Um, in terms of what they can actually do, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really just being, being supportive. And, I mean, sometimes you, we would always, we would always, if we, we would always put the question as to whether the writer, the author of the book, would like to adapt the book. Um, because the author's voice is often what is, it depends on the on what the story is and what the what the book is and kind of who the writer is. But so, for example, with um, a a book that is very much about the character's voice, you would always ask the author, did they have an intention to adapt it in the first instance? Because even if they come up with this, we you know our job is to structure a screenplay and help and help the, the screenwriter, whoever they are, through that process. And it's always really great to just retain the voice of the author of the book, because, especially if it's a, success, a successful book. And that's not so much a classic story like, uh, for example, uh, Corelli or Atonement, or, um, but something like Bridget Jones, for example. Helen Fielding has been at the center of every adaptation of those, of those stories. Well, let's ask an author, Ben, did you feel that you could phone up Cameron Crowe, say, I want it done this way? Was there any dialogue between author and director and screenwriter, producer? Yeah, well, there was quite a lot of dialogue with um, the screenwriter. The first screenwriter was Aline Brock McKenna, from, uh, who did The Devil Wears Prada, and she was very keen to um, find out exactly where I was coming from and you know, lots of issues with it. Again, my agent was saying, agree to everything. Um, but there were certain things that I did argue about, um, as politely as possible, because I'd already signed, I, I knew I had no actual influence. Um, I mean, the, in, in the book and in real life, um, after we bought the zoo and before we opened it, um, my wife, Catherine, died. And 
uh, that was the major catastrophe for us. Um, and in the film, they kept that, they wanted a, a, a bereavement um, to underpin the, the action, uh, but they said it was too sad to have it happening in the film, and so they moved that uh, episode to about six months before the film started, so that it's all about the rebuilding um, of the family and the zoo. And ultimately, when, they, when you adapt a thing, you have to praise it relentlessly and ruthlessly for a different audience. And um, I did think, I knew that the screenwriter had got about half a million dollars for uh, praising my work. And I thought, I can praise loads. I can do loads of stuff, me. Um, but um, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, and I did argue with them and say, actually, dramatically, partly <laughs> that was what happened. But also, dramatically, it's, it's actually better, you know, the, you, you know, act one, everything's hopeful, act two, it's a terrible catastrophe, act three, it all comes good. What could be worse um, than in act two? And they thought, no, no, that's just too bad, and so they moved it, and I don't think I could have done that. Um, and also, they, you know, they took, I mean, it was also about buying a house for my mother, and my mother's not in the film. And uh, so, I think, sometimes, if the author's very, kind of, more professional than me uh, and more, more used to that, that whole thing and it's less of a personal story, they would be the ideal person to do the screenplay. Uh, but I don't think I could have produced that particular one. Companion question really to the last question on that side, which is that um, how important is profile um, in terms of the book? So Michael Morpogo is obviously really famous. Um, you know, if you're a best-selling author, does that have an impact? If you're a journalist with a name, if you're a celebrity with a real-life story, or, or can you be a nobody that just writes a good story? How much does name count? I mean, I presume Michael Moore, Michael Moore Pergo is a big name, but he's not a massive name in Hollywood, is he? No, no, he's not known in America. But yes, I mean, is it, we live in an age of celebrities, and anything that, you know, people know about... Uh, that's why people are interested in books, because, uh, 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 as, as you said, it, it, um, there is already a, a known there. There's a marquee word, as they say in America. So, yes, I think it does make a difference. Laura? There are some books that get picked up that haven't made a huge mark on sort of publications. So something like The Descendants, which is now up for lots of Oscars, had only sold, you know, like a couple of thousand copies before the film came out, and now we've sold sort of... 30,000 or something like that in the last month. So um, that probably wasn't considered a huge publishing success when it first came out. Um, although it's a wonderful, wonderful story, which is sort of yeah. why it, it was picked up. War Horse was one of his first and sold, you know, about 2,000 copies. It now sells, I don't know how many, because I get it wrong, but I mean so many that yeah. you don't need to know the number. Yeah. And yeah. I presume your agent has told you to expect a spike in sales when the film comes out here? Yeah, um, I think so, but it's, uh, uh, I, I checked on Amazon a few weeks back, um, and it spikes in different countries where, where, where the film's released, but not as much as I'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> I read recently that um, Lionel Bart, having sold the rights to Oliver the Musical, was then given um, some money back by Cameron Mackintosh when it was revived, kind of in the 90s, I think. Um, but I also read that Cadmus Bushnell uh, sold the rights to Sex and the City for $60,000 in the early 90s um, and has never seen a penny since. What do the panel think about the ethics of options and um, what the kind of the original author of a story 
um, can expect to get. Amelia, I guess, I mean, it's different for every book, every author, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and, and I think, again, it, 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 there's a process, there's a, there's a market price for material in terms of whether the author's been previously optioned, whether it is an established author, whether there is, you know, there are three or four people all wanting it. it become, you, you might find yourself in an auction situation at which point, you know, the price can go as high as anybody is prepared to pay. Um, and I think, you know, much the same as in publishing, you, you might option something for, and, and, and I mean, it really, it, it's, it's, it's a case-by-case case basis, I think, is, is probably the, the right way to, to approach it. But going back again, you would, as a producer, you would always strive to maintain a very good relationship with your author. And if the film did take $400 million and win 10 Oscars, as the producer, certainly in the world I come from, you would make sure that your author felt looked after. And without um, wanting to look through your bank account details, Benjamin, was the original deal, the optioning of the book, or the subsequent sales off the back of the film, because it has been released in America, what, what was the most financially, financially um, beneficial deal in that arrangement? Well, financially, it hasn't been hugely beneficial. Um, there, there was a small amount paid uh, on the option and uh, a little bit more when it went into production. And again, my agent said... Uh, accept the offer and I, I refused the first offer um, because as a freelance journalist I'm used to selling things and you can always tell when the person on the other end of the phone really wants it and you sort of just hold back for one more bid and, and I, I bottled out after one and said okay that's fine um, and, but in, 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 in our case we have a zoo at the other end which is uh, a, a, an open ended money pit I mean if a tiger that the other day trod on its claw and stuck into its pad which effectively cost us two and a half thousand pounds which we weren't expecting to spend that week um, to have her anesthetized and, and pulled out and it's a bit like running a, a national health service with a sort of open-air theater to try to finance it and um, so we really do need all the money we can get and it was quite odd going to Hollywood standing next to probably you know this many people in a room and every one of them is a multi-millionaire who could write a, a check without even noticing which would solve all the zoo's problems all the people who work there all the people who come and enjoy it and all the animals without even the slightest effect on their lifestyle but actually in your contract it says you'll get five percent of net profits if there are any profits and I know that the Tolkien estate uh, I think the, the Tolkien film didn't that make 200 million um, it grossed 200 million, um, and they said, "Oh no, sorry, there's no profit from that for the Tolkien estate at all." Mm. And I think after some legal wrangling, uh, that changed. But uh, that's that's the way it happens. It's a ratchet, uh, and it is a business, obviously. Um, but for, in our case, obviously our case is different always. But uh, it, it, it irks slightly that, that there's so much money swimming around, and we're so desperate at the other end with with a real life story that is. The cause of it, and it has always amazed me how writers in Hollywood are sort of almost interchangeable, like like props. So, oh, we need some more words, you words, you know. And they they they're not pay, they're they're the lowest paid people in the entire production. I mean, I remember when the first writer got a million dollars a movie, and I'm thinking I, I didn't realise how lowly paid they were. That was when you know Schwarzenegger was getting like 25 million. 
for, for performing the words of the writer. You know, uh, that, where does it all come from? So, oh, it doesn't matter, we'll just get another writer. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a, strange, a strangely skewed uh, system. I think we're probably nearly running out of time. And I just want to, we'll probably get one more question, but I just want to end on a really uh, reductive note. Maybe we should get the question first and you all have a think about it. I want the, the best, most successful film adaptation from a book and... We've heard about Bonfire of the Vanities already. Uh, the worst one ever. Just mull that over, panel, and we'll take uh, probably just one last question, I think. It's nearly 8 o'clock. If, if books are effectively, um, you know, they give the reader the film in their own head, you know, 100,000 words, and, and films obviously give, um, you know, they fit in all the detail for you. Just a question, I suppose, for the publishers, really, just to, to, to query the role of published screenplays, because I always really enjoy reading them, and sometimes of plays that I've not, of films that I've not, I've not seen. I wonder whether that was a missing marketing opportunity for airports, you know, because you know it's going to take, you know, take you a short time to read. Just one other point of comment, really, was about a book that was uh, written almost gagging for it to be made into a film. I think Sebastian Falk's A Week in December is cynically written to, you know, the, to be a film. It's almost the characters are thin, the plot ties up comes together, and uh, I would be surprised if he wouldn't admit that that was just deliberately written, ready for adaptation. Let's just get one more comment. just wondering, if you'd have just written the script rather than the book, would you have profited, made more of a profit? Yeah. I think so, yeah. That would have been the way to do it, <laughs> with hindsight. I don't know. If you write the script of a film, do you get a royalty in the way that you do as the author? Yeah. So you just get this upfront fee. So depending on how long the film goes that on. That depends on how the contract's negotiated or individually. Depends on how good your lawyer is, probably. And also, um, every deal is different. So there is there is no magic formula for would-be writers, screenwriters, authors out there. Uh, it, it sounds like pot luck, but it's all to do with quality in the end, I guess. It's about having a great story. It's about having a great director on your side, a great producer, and a great team of actors. So when does it work best? When has it worked best? Laura, I'm going to start with you, put you on the spot. Your favourite um, film adaptation of a book. My favourite film adaptation of a book is Trainspotting because it's so lurid and mad and energetic and dynamic and it captures that kind of subculture completely perfectly. And it's got Irving Welsh in it as a drug and dealer. it's got Irving Welsh. Daniel yeah. adapting Irving Welsh. And the worst... Oh, this is a very loose one, but Troy, because it's probably based on the Iliad, <laughs> and the high and low kind of, um, yeah. <laughs> There's no gods in it, and, and yeah, it's terrible. Who directed Troy? I don't actually know. It stars Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, is that one? Which is the only reason I saw yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Benjamin. Um, I suppose, I think The Day of the Jackal was a fantastic film um, and if you watch it again it's really languid and you know, spends a lot of time on the details and it, if you're a teenage boy it makes you want to become a professional assassin, that's for sure. Um, what, what a lifestyle. Quite faithful to the Ferrisic Forsyth, yes, if I remember right. Yes, exactly. And I think probably the worst uh, one is the remake of The Day of the Jackal. Uh, <laughs> with, I think it was Bruce Willis, and which just was appalling. I mean, I, try, I tried to watch it all the way through, and I just kept pulling away. It was really, really bad. 
Somerset House bells are chiming behind me, so we're going to have to race through Revel. <laughs> you, you can race through me. It's one thing I never do is say which I think is which best and which is worst, partly because I haven't seen them all. And I, yeah, so <laughs> similarly in voting on anything, unless you've just been, have seen the whole lot, I don't think I'm qualified to That's do, a fantastically diplomatic answer from Revel Guest. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia. Well, I have to say Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy um, because I do think it's a, I do think it's a good adaptation, and I think it's a I think it's a great reinvention of that story. But personally, I um, and I'm not going to say the worst because I know how hard it is to get a film made, and no one ever sets out to make a bad film, really and truly. Um, uh, my favourite adaptation, uh, personal favourite, is The English Patient, and I think Anthony Minghella did a fantastic job with that book, and if you read the book and you watch the film, both are equally enjoyable but very different, and um, um, one that I will watch again and again. Of course, I didn't say Warhorse. <laughs> did, you know, did you notice I didn't say Warhorse? Didn't even say Warhorse. No question about it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, time is up. As I say, I think the message tonight is quality is out. Quality on the page, quality on the screen. Keep writing, keep watching. People will be here for a few minutes. If you've got any more questions to the panel, they will be uh, in the room for probably not too long. But thank you all very much for coming. And uh, thanks to the panel tonight. <laughs>